1: You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan. My guest today, to my great delight, is the author and UCD professor of drama, Emily Pine, who did something very different this year by taking a break from academic writing to publish a collection of deeply personal essays. To call them personal, actually, is to really understate it. The essays and notes to self explore topics that we're not supposed to talk about, such as infertility, miscarriage and alcoholism. And the book featured on best of lists everywhere in 2018. Emily also won the Best Newcomer category at the recent On Post Irish Book Awards. The honesty and rawness of the essays in Notes to Self is striking and I was delighted to have the chance to discuss them with Emily in person. Emily, one of the things that struck me about your writings, about your father, which was only the beginning of this, I thought this was going to be the absolute most dramatic part of it. In fact, it wasn't. Uh, But your father... Um was sounds monstrous in the essay, and yet you're going to tell me you love him dearly and he's not.
0: Oh, absolutely. I grew up adoring him and some of the pieces that I talk about in Notes to Self about him, these stories were kind of funny family stories about the day, you know, dad would take you out and never think about feeding you, you know, and then eventually you might get a packet of digestives, you know, in the back of the car at the end of the day or whatever. These kind of an amusing stories and anecdotes that we to- always told to ourselves. When you write them down and when people read them, you suddenly realize they're actually quite serious. And the digestive's not serious, but other aspects. Of it you think, oh this is we laughed about it because it was the only way of talking about it without confronting the difficulty or the shame or the emotional pain of it. Um and we do that a lot in Ireland about lots of things you know, and and I think alcoholism is is number one on the list of things we talk about without actually talking about. Funny stories, quote yeah.
1: unquote. Yeah.
0: Exactly, and then you think, oh these are actually quite serious and um, you start to share them with other people and their faces fall and you realise, oh okay, maybe we should maybe I should change my tone. And part of writing Notes to Self actually was about trying to decide the tone of voice of the book, right? Not self-pitying, but also. Also not making too light of things that were serious, whether there were things that happened, you know, because my dad had an alcohol abuse problem for decades or because, you know, as a teenager, I encountered certain really destructive and painful scenarios um, where other people did bad things to me. And I kind of made them safe in my life by telling them as funny stories And then you could look back and you think, well, maybe these are not, these are things that we need to expose to light and allow the risk of them being dangerous.
1: Really dangerous, Emily, because one of the things that jumped out at me, among the many things that jumped out at me, was the night your father telephoned you to say he was going to kill himself.
0: Yeah, I was only very young then. What age were you then? Because, I don't know, my memory is a tiny bit hazy about ages, but I was probably about eight or nine. And you
1: said you loved him. Your response was to say, I love you.
0: Yeah, that was all I could. I just didn't really understand. I knew, I mean, looking back, he must have been very drunk, but, you know, I was on the phone and I was just listening to him and he was slurring his words and And I just said, I, I love you, Dad. and And then, And then, you know, the phone line goes dead. And I thought about lots of things I thought at the time, and I actually thought about it for years and years and years. I thought about what I should have done, you know, as a child to try and save my dad. Because um, that's all I ever wanted to do, and 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 actually he didn't. He he was he was he was drunk, and he suffered very very badly from depression, um, and I'm sure he was very seriously considering ending his life, but he didn't, which I'm really grateful for. And he was fine the next day. But you do you carry those things with you, and I never told anyone. You know, I didn't tell my mum because you don't want to worry your mum either. You know, my parents were separated; they didn't speak so. It wasn't really possible anyway. Which
1: is another fascinating part of the story. Again, one of the many. But you do say, and it's a time of year when I think it's maybe especially relevant, you say it's hard to love an addict, but you can't stop. The person who loves the addict exhausts their love on a daily basis.
0: And renews their love. It's funny, you know... uh, People ask me sometimes, you know, now, because the, the good news story is that my dad has stopped drinking. He went into liver failure, which was, he needed to hit rock bottom, and he did hit it. This is only a few years ago, though, now. Yeah, 2013. Yes. And and was the, the impetus for me to write this book, really. Um, and he, he gave up drink and is off the liver transplant list and is living his life, which is extraordinary, something I couldn't have imagined a few years ago. Um, and so that's the that's the good news part of it. Uh the, since then, I've, and since starting to talk about kind of alcoholism and its impact on families, people have asked me, you know, how do you look after yourself when you have a parent um, who is an alcoholic? And I don't have an easy answer for that. I think you do have to set boundaries. So, but you continually end up revising those boundaries. If you uh, sometimes the only option is to actually walk away, and you, you don't want to do that, and um, so. Somebody I know whose parent is also a drinker um, called it radical acceptance, where you understand that the person is not going to change and you also understand that you're not going to walk away from them. And so you just have to practice this radical acceptance. Again, coming back to
1: the writing of this, Emily, you wrote this extraordinarily heartfelt, honest, yet almost clinical Piece about your father. This is just one of the successes. It was the, the first, book. yeah, the first, um, and even your first line about finding him lying in a pool of his own shit, and then you realise he's in hospital. He's in Greece. There are no nurses. There, the doctor goes off uh, duty at two o'clock in the day or something. I mean, that in itself is a truly shocking introduction to a story. If that was all you had written, it would have been shocking. But you then found yourself and your sister with a very unappreciative father who actually could remember nothing of what you had done, the 24-hour journey, the begging doctor, a doctor to come up and see him in the ward, having to go and buy sort of, I think, incontinence, nappies for him, all that sort of thing. You wrote all this down and you
0: said, it to your father. I did, yeah, I did. And um, I wrote it down mostly to get it out of my head, because it had been spinning around. And I also think as a way of, of trying to make a narrative story out of it. And, uh, and he had written, because he writes for the Irish Times, and he had written his own piece um, for the health sect- section, which we all thought was really funny that he was writing for the health section. Um, and he, so, so, and I hadn't really, I hadn't seen us in his piece basically and so i thought well i need to write something and and i sent it to him and in complete admiration of him he i you know he acknowledged what i had said in in the piece and in the essay and he said that he thought it was beautiful and brave and i think it was we've had a lot of much more honest conversations as a result uh, of me writing this and as a family and also between myself and my dad um i think We had to face certain things. And I think that (laughs) uh, addicts build a 10-foot deep wall of insulation around themselves in order to carry on through their life and not see the pain that they are creating for other people. And that's necessary for them to do. And taking that wall down is really difficult. And I think, you know, people who love addicts build those walls around themselves as well. And writing about it was one way of taking the wall down. But the wall also stops them from understanding what the, the emotional difficulty of what has happened. And I think this—I think me writing notes on intemperance was the first time my dad had to say, "Oh, you were hurt by this," and he's he, he apologized for it. And that well, that was a first. Um, and what yeah. age was he then? I don't know. He's in his his late sixties now. So, yeah. yeah. You know, you're never too old (laughs) to change. It turns out, as we, as we still joke, you know, he's still not perfect. It turns out. Um, it wasn't just the alcohol, but we have a, we have a very different relationship now. And again, I couldn't have imagined it. Um, and he, he gets to hang out now with his grandson. You is know? it the old
1: story, Emily, that you know they say the addict needs to hit rock bottom? Yeah, it is, it is. And that actually happened to him. He nearly died.
0: He very nearly died and through nearly dying he realised he wanted to live and because he was, he was deliberately slowly killing himself. Mm-hmm. He was drinking himself to death. It was a one-man quest to do that. And at the point at which he, he almost succeeded, he realised that that was not what he wanted to do and we're very, very lucky that he had not gone too far.
1: Emily, the portrait of your mother is, uh, on the one hand, she is quite the heroine in this. She's a warrior. She's a warrior. On the other hand, some of it is quite unsparing as well. Um, you, you, when, you, when your father gave up on you, basically, you grew up in, in, in you, you, you lived in poverty. Um, and she survived the only way she knew how, really, which was quite often meant the two of you, you, you yourself and your little sister, were left alone a lot of the time.
0: Well, she I mean, there was somebody minding us, but it wasn't her. Um, I mean, you know, she had to work full time. She was a single parent. It wasn't easy in the 1980s. She didn't have any financial support from my father. And she also deserved her own life. It's, I think it's one of the ironies and also joys of now being, you know, much older than she was then. But, you know, she was in her early 30s with two kids under five and doing it by herself and in, in a climate where nobody would. There were so few single parents I think there was one other single parent family in my whole school it was seen as something quite shameful and, and she when was, divorce didn't even exist didn't legally. exist yes. and she didn't really have any legal rights like so, because divorce didn't exist she didn't have a legal right to petition my father for maintenance for child maintenance um or to enforce you know the custody agreement and so on um, so she did what she could and it, it, it's really interesting I think now that um Now that, you know, I'm in my 40s and I'm working and whenever I have a problem at work, she's the first person I call. Um, And she's... Because she is a model for me of how to be a professional working woman. And she... One of the things that she instilled in both myself and my sister was that you have to have independent financial means. You cannot be dependent on another person for your income. It is so important if you have nothing else. And I... I, I just see that as a, a huge gift that a mother can give to her daughter, um, as a, a lesson in how to live and ha- be able to have control of your own life. So, Emily,
1: when you wrote about your father, you said, "Had you already got the book contract at that stage?"
0: No, I wrote about my dad and I sent it to Tramp Press, Lisa Cohen, and Sarah Davis Goff, and uh, because I knew Lisa, she'd done a PhD. We always uh, I was described as a recovering academic, and uh, so. And I knew that they only published fiction. Now, that probably sounds quite contradictory, but I thought that they would give me an honest reaction and that they would know that I wasn't asking them to publish me. And so then we went for lunch one day, a few months later, and they said, we, we would like to publish you. And I said, but you only publish fiction. This is non-fiction. I'm not going to fictionalise it. And they said, yeah. And, you know, they, they really saw the possibility, I think.
1: Did they know your, your entire story at the time? Because we're going to yeah. get into the the fertility, the, the, the fertility treatment, the amazing stories at the end about London as a teenager. They knew nothing of that.
0: No, they knew none of it. Um, I think they just had a... They have very good publishing instincts. And it's funny, you know, there were times when I got cold feet in the whole process of writing about, as you say, all these difficult experiences. And they would say, you please trust us. And they were there very supportively. And trusting them was one of the best decisions I ever made. Actually, no. They didn't know any of it. They just said they they had an instinct that there was more, Um, and they thought that if nothing else, I could write about growing up in an alcoholic context. But I felt that I had these, the, the book Notes to Self is made up of essays. And I really like the essay form because it's intense and it's self-contained. So I had this sense that in writing an essay about my dad, I had said everything that I wanted to say on that particular topic. So they said, well, well, so I asked them what else I would write about. And they said, well, anything you like, which is quite, you know, an act of permission granting. And I think sometimes women need to be given permission to, to see their own story as, as worthy. Because you were ready at this point, clearly. Yeah, I got the bus, I got the 16 bus home. It was just, it was two years ago. Um, it was just before Christmas, you know, and uh, I sat on the bus and on the back of my bus ticket. I scribbled down five ideas for the other five essays and they, they, they never changed. They make it sound easy. You know, it wasn't easy, but it kind of poured out of me and I think we all have stories inside us that we are burning to let out.
1: Okay, I'm going to ask you a question that I know annoyed you when a male interviewer asked, you, asked it of you, but you left actually the most, what I would call in journalistic terms, the most sensational stories until last, which is something we do not expect of authors or publishers nowadays. We expect to hear them roaring from the rooftops about whatever it is that is the most sensational detail in a story. And in your last chapter, which was quite shocking, actually, because up to that point, I had thought of you, daughter of a writer. I don't know what your mother does for a living. You kept all that extraordinarily private, actually. Your husband is referred to as or the whole way through. Uh, so at, at one level, you were extremely private. Well, they're their they're
0: stories, yes. not mine. And yes. I was determined to only tell my story and to protect their privacy where, where I felt it was appropriate. So you sounded like I
1: was sort of a typical middle class academic's daughter mm-hmm. and you hit in hard times, but actually you weren't starving and all I the rest. Middle
0: class people are always fine.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And then we get to this last chapter, Emily, where you talk about those years in London. Your mother went to London for her job and took the two little girls with her. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about that and explain to listeners why I would have found it so amazing.
0: So I was 14 when we moved to London. Um, My mum did a really brave thing in trying to change our lives and she really did. You know, she got us out of the poverty trap. And it was a really exciting new beginning. Um, but part of the problem was at that stage, I'd already, I already w- I was already anorexic. Um, I wasn't really... I mean, I can see it now in hindsight, but I didn't know it at the time. I didn't have a language for it at the time. I was clearly depressed and not able to deal with the legacy of aspects of my childhood, which had been pretty fragmentary. And uh, suddenly plunged into a completely different context in a completely different city. And I was really excited to move to London. I remember talking about it with friends of mine in Dublin at school and we were, you know, we couldn't wait to get out of Ireland. Ireland in 1990 just seemed like not a place you wanted to grow up, not a place for women to be to have any kind of experience of freedom. Um, and it, you know, way before anyone had ever heard of the Celtic Tiger, you know, it just, we just wanted to, to go somewhere else and this was a, a ticket to do that. The, it was funny when I was leaving London four years later then in 1995, um, at 18, I realised that the things that had made London really exciting at the beginning, that nobody knew you and you could do anything and there was a kind of ticket for, to freedom, were also the things that made it really easy to leave at the end and made me really happy to come home to Dublin um, because it's really lonely, was really isolated and I was really alienated. I went to a school that was really big, it was a you know, comprehensive school and there weren't... You know, there weren't enough teachers. There wasn't enough care. There wasn't any care for people who were struggling at all. Um, when I was politely asked to leave that school, um, the headmistress said to my mother, who was delighted to get me out of it, um, which is a conversation actually she and I have only had very recently. I didn't know that at the time. I thought she was hugely disappointed in me. Um, the headmistress said we just we'd lose the t- we'd lose the bottom ten percent, and I was in that bottom ten percent. And um, because I didn't have a very stable sense of self or a particularly happy mental health, um, again, words I would never have been able to use at the time, um, I just, I, I kind of, I found a different life where I felt that I could express myself. Unfortunately, that life was about drinking and drugs and going to nightclubs and raves and the being surrounded by a lot of friends, yes, um, who are st- many of whom are still friends today and are fantastic people, but by also really unscrupulous people and really de- dangerous situations. And, you know, some of my friends died and they didn't make it. And their lives stopped when they were teenagers. And I feel very, very lucky. i It is, I'm very lucky to not have been one of them.
1: What's astonishing about it as well, Emily, is that, what, you were 15 or so, you you were in those middle, these desperately vulnerable middle teenage years. I don't care what kind of a family you're in, you're still, anything can happen in those years. It's pure luck, I think, that helps people survive them. But it it was the sense of the, the, the predatory men around you, the sense that no one cared. You felt worthless, lonely. All of those things that I think assails many teenagers. Absolutely. In your case, you felt you acted
0: it out. Yes, and I, I mean I wasn't alone. There were there were lots of us, and nightclubs were full of fourteen year old girls in London in the nineties. You know, the we we were good for business. Um, you know, then I remember there was one time when a friend of mine and I she'd lost her child travel cart in a nightclub, and uh, we went and picked it up from the front desk, and we were back later that night as. Uh, as guests at the nightclub. And we all had VIP passes to get in for free. And we were all 14, 15. You know, it was it was the it was norm. Um, and, uh, but, you know, and it, this comes back again to deciding on tone. Um, I had kind of not exactly sealed away the, those years in a tiny little box, but I had sealed away parts of it. And the parts that I let out were like, oh, I was, you know, Wild and went to parties and, you know, backstage passes and all those kind of things as if they were glamorous. Um, But there was a really dark and serious and painful underside to that, which was that I would find myself in situations that I couldn't physically protect myself, including being raped. And I write about it in Notes to Self as... I write about the struggle to use that word rape. Um, I would not have used it at the time. It wasn't really until the writing of this book that I dis- that I named it. I thought there was a lot of stigma attached to the word. Um, I thought that there, my, I thought that you there had to be actual violence. You had to get beaten up in order for it to count. The fact that I knew the men who did this to me didn't seem to justify me using the word. And so I called, <laughs> for all those years, I just thought, like literally for 25 years, I thought about these as occasions when I had sex against my will, which is basically the definition of rape. And it's funny, I see books like Asking For It and the recent stage adaptation and other representations of teenagers in exactly the same scenarios now and think, I'm so grateful that these conversations are being had out loud at last, um, because I think you... You keep the damage inside you if you don't let it out. And really oddly, since publishing it, I have had conversations with so many women who have exactly the same experience as me and who say, oh, the number of times this happened to me, the number of times a man just treated my body as if he could use it and my permission did not mean anything.
1: Emily, you you asked one of your assailants, why had he, why you, why had he done it?
0: And he said, it's something about you. It's a vibe you give off. And
1: I believed him. And you were what then? You Were were you 15, 16? Probably 16 or
0: 17.
1: Well, I think just between you and me, I think one of the amazing things your publishers did and that you did was to keep that story to last.
0: Yeah, do you think? Because if that had yeah. come at the beginning, it would have influenced everything you'd yeah. read before that. It was entirely the process. And it was strange because... It was Tramp Press, and this is fine, we can talk about this again. It was Tramp Press who suggested that something about me, that essay about my teenage years, come late on in the book. Um, I had assumed that they would want something more like chronological memoir. And uh, instead, no, they really went for the essay form and they were re- really knowledgeable about you know, how how structure works. And so I thought putting something about me that essay late on in the book people would have a sense of who I was and then would see this this disclosure as part of the larger person as opposed to the only thing about me that's notable and as you say as opposed to reading everything that comes after in response to a few, because this is the other thing as well this is why people don't talk about sexual violence because we don't want that to be the only thing that we're labelled with you know we're multiple people. People are not just one thing. Yes, and and that's what I mean. It's it's it's
1: it's a living proof of that because right up to that point, I'm reading this book from the point of view, as I say, of a a, a, a very stable middle class woman who's been very successful in her career, uh, who was who was in a very stable relationship. Mm-hmm. Which is not something you would have predicted if you'd read the end first.
0: No, and actually, being in a stable relationship and in a secure place in my life is why I can write about it. right the risk is much smaller for me now, uh, and I'm with someone who, over the last twenty years, has taught me what love is. Like it's just it's it's a huge change. It's extraordinary for me.
1: Well, it's a huge triumph for you that you've that through all of the the, the vicissitudes of of childhood and and your father and all of that. Damage that was done. That you know how to negotiate an adult relationship.
0: <laughs> I'm not always brilliant. At it. You know, you know it's a it's a process of compromise, Emily. Before
1: all that, so so you 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 met or Yes. Uh, what age were you when you met him?
0: Uh, early twenties. So, actually, you were extremely lucky. You came back. Edu- education did it kind of save you? It did. It did. And I'm, you know, I'm an academic today, I and mean, it continues to save me. I love university. I got to university at eighteen and thought, oh, okay.
1: Now, how did you even I do that? How did I don't you go know? I think my mother. Of London to
0: was it your mother? My mother. My mother. My mother. I went through many, uh, not many. I went through several uh, secondary schools. Five, I think. Five, yes. <laughs> <laughs> thanks um and my mother was just determined and she w- waged a one woman battle kind of against me and kind of against the system because also i had i had missed so much school as in i had not gone to school um for so many days that i couldn't stay within the comprehensive system which is an enormous financial blow for my family and my mother just picked it up and shouldered it and um managed to get me into a school. And the, this was a school in London. And I I stayed there for three years very, very happily. It had two rules. You had to turn up and you had to uh, do the work. Everything was on a first name basis. You called all the teachers by their first names. They called you by your first name. And um, you got, you could take cigarette breaks. And um, it was a school for troubled kids in inverted commas. And uh, the timetable was from 10am to 6pm, recognising that lots of kids are not able to do the 8.30 a.m. starts. Um, so it was a really supportive environment and they... So schools school still exist. It does, yeah. We send all our kids there. <laughs> if we could afford it, it's very expensive. <laughs> this is the downside. If there, were, there were eight people to a class. Eight people and one in one teacher. I mean, you know, those student teacher ratios are not easy to manage and I know that as a university teacher I have a much worse student teacher ratio now in the classes I teach. Um, and and my mum just kept me at it, and 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 things started to go wrong when I was seventeen. As I, you know, two of my friends died, and I started to realise that that came home to me that I needed a way out, and uh, I started studying for the first time and managed to get three A levels and got into college. Came home to Dublin. Again, huge part of that was coming back to a smaller community where I knew people and uh, went to college, made amazing friends and uh, found somewhere that I was at home. I went, I just studied English at Trinity um, and, I, I mean, at the same time, I realised, because I hadn't gone to school for so long, I, I had hardly any um, GCSEs, the equivalent of the of the junior search I I hadn't done any maths or any history or any geography or anything like in years I was sitting in classes looking around at all the people who knew all these things I had no idea about and I uh, felt completely out of my depth kept thinking they were going to take my place away from me but I stayed and the lectures were really encouraging and then I you know did a PhD and now I'm working in the I mean I've never left the university I found it and I thought right this is this is it I'm staying. <laughs> and you met, did you meet
1: or in university? Yes,
0: yeah. Yeah, I did,
1: yeah. Um, and just for anyone listening who is kind of despairing of, an, of a, a child in their early teens who just seems to be going nowhere or going too many places maybe, uh, one of the things I remember, Emily, from what you said was that you felt you were friendless at yes. the start of as, as secondary school.
0: Yeah, I wasn't very good at making friends. I didn't really know how. It was kind of, my mother always described me as spiky. I just, I wasn't, I wasn't an easy person to be around so emily you met or mm-hmm. and
1: was that so that as well as 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 finding your feet in in uh in yeah i was doing my phd
0: when i met my partner yes um so i was kind of already a few years down the road of of uh self-care yes which is what we call it now but oh, uh, back then yeah. it was just like going to bed and things like that mm. um and i was eating again uh and a normal weight and and so on and those those basic things are essential for mental health. So I was in a much better position when I met him and he was doing a PhD and... Yeah. And then,
1: Emily, something else. Another of the has deals with something which is so very germane to many mm. women now and men indeed, which is the whole issue of fertility and deciding in this kind of luxurious way, will I have a baby? When will I have a baby? What will I do? Oh, gosh, that'll be a lot of trouble. Maybe I'll leave it for a while. Tell us a little bit about your experience.
0: We were in our 30s and uh, together for a while, you know, 10 years, and uh, decided that we wanted to have children. Um, one of the things, looking back on it, I realise is that the question of children is is put to us as if it's a yes or a no. Do you want to have children? Yes, now you go down this path. Or no, OK, you go down this other path. What I found was I went down the yes path and, and hit a wall. Um, my body wouldn't cooperate, uh, you know, I, I didn't feel able to m- emotionally to cope with, with what was happening. Um, I did get pregnant. Uh, I had um, a missed miscarriage, which is uh, a miscarriage where the fetus is, is dead or not growing, um, but uh, your body doesn't actually miscarry it. And so to all intents and purposes you're still you're pregnant. You're still pregnant, I still had morning sickness still show. and the tests still show and, and everything. And uh, But I was bleeding and so I was uh, going into Hollis Street um, Maternity Hospital and kind of scan after scan after scan and the reason there were so many scans is it was, and I because I wanted to get pregnant I had no idea that the uh, Eighth Amendment would have any relevance to my life. Um, and you know It is partly deduction on my part, but the medical staff wouldn't tell us anything. So we were going through this much-wanted pregnancy, the loss of a much-wanted pregnancy, and uh, no one would tell us what was happening, because the scans were, as they said, um, ambivalent and ambiguous. And so we weren't... Even though there was no heartbeat, as far as we know, at that stage. There was no heartbeat. Mm. So there really is no explanation for this. So it went on for another three weeks. And you finally... And finally, up some money. Finally, when we paid to go to a private clinic, um, and there the midwife broke the law effectively and told us um, that the that it was a non viable pregnancy, and um, at which point I was still pregnant and still carrying for another ten days, but at least I had an answer. Um, and then once it was finally diagnosed uh, I was brought in for um, a DNC is, is what it's referred to now um, but it, I think it's called technically called the evacuation of the remnants of the uh, of conception um, lovely word and uh, and then and then after that we tried for several years more and uh, and, and were unable to have any more pregnancies and I had to accept that I'm not going to be a mum. And writing, the, this is the second essay in the book and it was the second one that I wrote um, called From the Baby Years it was really a, a way of charting the five years of that whole process um, and getting to the point where I was at the end of the essay where I'm 40 and I, and I kind of look at my life and go, OK, right, I'm done. I'm done beating myself up. I'm done trying and failing. Uh, And I'm done defining myself by absence Um, because, and I talk about this in the book, and I think it applies not just to having babies, but lots of kind of life situations we find ourselves in where we can't control them. And you can beat yourself up and agonize about it, but the result is the same. So I have to find a way. And I mean, I, I grieve for my life as a mother, every day um, I'm really lucky my sister is incredible and has had two children and my, my nephew is a really really big part of my life um, but that's it's not it's not my role so I've got I to do something else with my life and, and actually writing notes to self was kind of the thing that I did instead of becoming a mum It's actually can
1: I just say to, to, to listeners it's, 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 a, it's an amazing portrayal of five years of of trying, of your marriage coming under pressure, of the awful sense, dawning sense that this is not going to happen, and then of having to de- make make the decision in the end about IVF. Um, I think it's a wonderful, wonderful portrayal of all that, Emily. But in the end, you found it kind of freeing when when you, you were grieving, obviously, the loss of this, but you also found it a freeing. Thing, that you were able to say that's the end of that now my lo- I can lead a very good and productive life
0: It's freeing to make a decision and then to think okay well what else can I do with my life and again to move away from this idea that women are somehow invalid if we're not also mothers mm-hmm. um, and you know emotionally I find it difficult but the other side of it is that I have other, so many other things in my life and so many other things to do and I just would rather concentrate on those now mm-hmm. Um, Again, one of the very honest uh,
1: exchanges in the book is with your sister when she announced, your younger sister, when yeah. she announced that she was pregnant. Again, this ferocious honesty in this where you couldn't think
0: about it. It was terrible. I, w- I, w- I mean, you know, I'm her older sister. i meant to be on her side all of the time. And all I could think was, I'm not pregnant. This is not fair. And it took me a full 24 hours to realise that she was giving me a gift by involving me in her pregnancy. And, you know, I'm I'm incredibly lucky uh, at the close, incredibly close relationship that I have with my sister. Uh, We're five years apart in age and we uh, weren't close companions as children. (laughs) I think it's safe to say my mother would have many stories. Um, There was one, you know... There were times where we'd be walking down the road and she'd be holding us at arm's length, you know, on either arm just because we, we'd just hit each other constantly. Stop the and hair t- Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the years of, Emily, there's a boy on the phone. Um, no, I mean, it's just amazing now the kind of relationship that we have and how much she includes me in her children's lives is, has just been really, really important. And she is
1: a huge figure in this book. Uh, in so many ways she has she's infused in it um you also describe the, the her own tragedy um
0: her first pregnancy um with her daughter elena jane um ended when elena was b- stillborn um on the 1st of january and uh she was full term almost and uh, perfect but her heart stopped and and we lost her and I, we will never, this, we will never recover from that loss, and we will never stop missing her. And uh, I am lost in admiration, though, as well, from my sister who manages to find the strength to go on. And uh, you know, it, it's only I think when it happens with your, within your own family that you start to see it everywhere. That there are, you know, stillborn children every week, and um, two in the National Maternity Hospital alone every week. And when you think about the number of grieving parents there are then in this country and you realise a tiny bit of the grief that people carry in their lives around with them and that you don't know from the outside. you will never know about it. And I think it's wonderful that in recent years, um, Ireland has started to acknowledge stillborn children. And it really is quite recent, um, until very... Um, very recently, I think parents were expected never to talk about their kids who had died, um, to pretend that it, it wasn't significant, um, not to name them. Um, and, and I think there's a confusion as well over people talk about miscarriage. And, you know, you want to say there's a very, very big difference between a miscarriage, which is what I had, and stillborn daughter, which is who, you know, Elena, we all held her. Um, she, was a, she was a little baby girl.
1: And even still, Emily, I would say, I don't need to say this to you, but your miscarriage was was such a loss of hope, as you know, as well. It was it's it's it's, it's a different thing. It's a different thing. We have very different losses. And yes. Um, one of the things you say is is uh, there's a pattern of not being taken seriously.
0: During those years, yeah, um, we went to uh, fertility clinics and doctors and I went through, um, we both went through a range of tests and so on, as you do, um, when things don't go easily. And uh, I went to GPs and, and all the rest and you know, kept trying to use my voice. And as we've said, I'm a middle-class person. I talk for a living. You know, I'm a, I am have a really high level of education. And so I should be one of those people who's really good at advocating for themselves within the health system. And yet it's really, really hard. You say, this is how I feel. This is what's happening. This is what my body like. And you get ignored. I mean, you know, it happened really recently to me. I was in the doctor for in the doctor's surgery for something completely different, um, but I just he said, how, "How are you feeling, just generally?" And I said, "Oh, you know, actually, I wanted to talk um, about not related to the thing that I'm here for, but about perimenopause." And he said, "I'm just going to stop you there. You're far too young. This won't happen to you for several years." And I thought. In that moment, you know, you do that really quick calculation that people do in those kind of scenarios. And that I think women are very adept, particularly at doing where I thought, right, well, I really want help for this other thing that I have wrong with my body. So I'm just going to smile and nod at this point at this patronizing man. And in order to get the health care that I need, and I will go and find a sympathetic doctor or, you know, I'll just Google it um, in order to find out why I can't make it through the night without sweating through like three pairs of pajamas. You know, I mean, that is the next book, you know, why I need to pee every five minutes and night sweats not glamorous but it's well, we true. look forward to that enormously <laughs>
1: yeah. um, in some ways Emily, you know you 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 also you you, you there's a tree of ties on bleeding which is really fascinating and gets to the root of femininity in in about 10 different ways do you want to tell us a little something about that and how there's a whole essay now about bleeding, just so people are, n- are not misunderstanding me here.
0: And bleeding, let's be specific, right, about yes. having a period,
1: right? Yes. And yes. what that feels like and the kind of bodily reality. What made me laugh was you were writing about th- these male writers who say you need to bleed onto the page yeah, in yeah. order to they get your story down in all its visceral importance. And you're saying, where are they going to bleed from?
0: Yeah, it's yeah. not a metaphor, lads. I'm actually <laughs> bleeding. Um yeah, the it's kind of funny. I wrote that, and uh, the first version of it was published in the Stinging Fly Journal. And uh, a friend of mine read it, and uh, she's a great reader. And she said, "You know, it's so it's so amazing because you, you never talk about your period." <laughs> she's like, "You're like the last person to discuss this part of your life." And I was like, "Yeah, Christine, I know you're right." And actually, that was kind of the point of writing it. I thought, let's. Let's use this book to confront the things. I mean, it says on the back cover, I'm I'm writing about all the things we feel we can't say out loud. So let's go big (laughs) on this and talk about leaking and staining and, you know, having sex while bleeding and men's reactions to that. was particularly that. memorable, actually. Yeah, I know. Uh, can I order you a taxi? Um, and uh, and then also the other part of it is talking about stopping bleeding and how I was in my late 30s when... And it was part of the journey of um, fertility um, that... And one of the questions that was never answered by any of the doctors that I saw as to why, following my miscarriage, it seemed to provoke a change and seemed to start menopause early. And so many um, kind of physical manifestations of that had followed, and again, no one was interested. And so I wrote the essay. I mean, it is, it's is—it's an angry essay, not in-your-face anger, but it is... an. Essay informed by and driven by the kind of anger of being ignored and women's bodies somehow being silenced. And it was funny because I was talking about it with someone and I said, oh, you know, this is an essay about how women's bodies are policed, how we have to have these hairless, you know, thin, white. I just said that made me laugh. That's
1: <laughs> yeah. A bit about the, spa- the smash the patriarchy dance. <laughs> Twenty women are, are are doing this fantastically theatrical dance, but they happen to be very well waxed and almost bare.
0: Which I find myself in this odd position. I think many women find themselves in, where you are both envying them their, you know, ability to be these high maintenance women, and also feeling small yourself for not living up to these bizarre beauty standards mainly dictated, as far as I can see, by porn. Um, and at the same time thinking, this is mad, this is not adhere to my feminist principles at all. It's really hard to be all those things at exactly the same time. And, you know, I, I think women's bodies are policed by external forces and by women themselves, you know, which is perhaps the most difficult thing to write about.
1: I think one of the most interesting things you ask there in the middle of the the dance, this very strange dance, is... Why do they have to be so very bare? Yeah. Um, (laughs) I think that's something we could come back to for a whole discussion, actually, sometime. Um, In the end, Emily, there is anger. Um, And as you say, it's not something that grinds into the reader's brain. It's not something I'll be honest with you and say that I wasn't looking forward to reading this book because I would read that it made people cry. And I just I'm trying not to read anything bleak at the moment but actually i didn't i didn't find it terribly bleak in the end i found it eye opening and absolutely shocking in parts but but always always unbelievably interesting but in the end there is anger and you say at one point that you're tired of being a feminist and then you qualify it a little bit
0: I'm tired of having to be a feminist yes, yes. you know <laughs> i'd love to live in a post feminist world wouldn't it be great yes yes you're tired of the responsibility yeah Yes. I'm tired that it's still necessary. I'm tired that you keep protesting and things seem to change and then they backslide and there's a backlash and some appalling right wing misogynists being elected all over the place. Not, thankfully, mostly in Ireland. Um, And, you know, Ireland, I think, stands out as this beacon of hope that we actually have got the right results in the last couple of referenda. Um, But, yeah, it's, it's, but it's also, it's exhausting have to keep protesting? Why do we have to keep on with the gender count, for example? Why do we have to keep saying, oh, let's look at the book reviews pages and see how many books by women were reviewed this week? Oh, one out of nine. Thanks a million. You know, the, that being the way you approach and analyze the world is really reductive. And that reduction is not set by us Ie feminists. It's set by the culture that we that we encounter, which continues to be, and it's not just about women either. Continues to be incredibly white dominated, um, not looking at uh, you know other people who are doing really important things if they don't meet you know male or pleasing woman or uh, white or middle class or not, not too angry, please. And one person said to me at a history conference, they said, oh, no, you know, the thing about your book is it's good because it's not, it's not the angry feminist book. You know, you actually uh, seem to be quite nice. <laughs> I felt like rewriting the thing like me after that
1: comment. Emily, can we end on that other story from an academic conference where you, were, you, you gave a lecture on rape? And this very uh, distinguished academic, was this in in Scandinavia somewhere? It was
0: abroad. And uh, the chair of the department um, said that he didn't... It was a really, really strange, actually, moment. Um, I'd given this lecture on... And I'm a lecturer in theatre at UCD. And so I'd been travelling abroad to give this lecture on theatrical representations of rape. And it's not a cheery subject. You know, I'm a very cheerful, optimistic person in real life, but I work on really depressing things. Uh, But I think these are necessary things as well for us to look at. And uh, at the end of the lecture, uh, the chair of the department opened the session by saying, you know, I I don't know how to respond to what you've said um, because you look, and he paused and he said, I don't want to use the word cute, but... Then let it trail off and said, how you look and what you talk about don't seem to go together. And again, I just did a really fast calculation in my head and thought, right, (laughs) let's move on. I didn't comment. I didn't react. I didn't say anything in relation to what he had said. I simply said, does anybody have any questions? We just know this man is a very influential academic
1: somewhere in, in Europe. Yeah. I Emily, mean, have we learned anything from this? I mean, are you recalibrating yourself in some way, having written these essays?
0: I think I'm probably closer to owning my own anger. I think I'm closer to speaking up uh, in the moment as opposed to thinking about it and coming up with the perfect riposte two hours later. Uh, I think I'm closer to recognising the emotions involved in what we do. Uh for a long time I thought that emotions didn't belong at work and so I didn't really think that much about emotions, but actually emotions drive everything that we do. And recognising that people have a whole range of emotions from fear to resentment to joy and love and anger for everything that they do I think is a really useful way of analysing the world. So yeah, I think being strategic um, but also reflecting uh, uh, is, is, my, is my mantra from now on.
1: Being strategic, but also reflecting. There's a message for 2019. We hope. Emily Pine, thank you so much. I can't wait to see what you do next.
0: Thanks so much. Thanks a million.
1: And that's it for today. Thank you very much to Emily Pine for speaking to before for this episode and a reminder that our excellent book of essays is called Notes to Self. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts and you can always find us on irishtimes.com. If you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast, or you can email us on Podcast at irishtimes.com. Also, we do enjoy a bit of praise from time to time. So if you like what we do, then please do head along to iTunes and give us a review and tell all your friends about it. The podcast is produced by Rosie Ingle and Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon and Sound. I'm Kathy Sheridan, and until next time, thanks for listening.
0: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.